0: Professor Colin Drummond. He is the Professor of Addiction Psychiatry, Head of the Alcohol Research Group, and Consultant Psychiatrist at the National Addiction Center at the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College, London, and the NHS Foundation Trust. He is the principal investigator on several research grants from the Department of Health, the Medical Research Council, and the European Commission, including the Department of Health-funded National Alcohol Needs Assessment Project, and a national research program on alcohol screening and brief intervention known as SIPS. Um, he has provided advice to governments on alcohol and drug misuse strategy. He is also a member of the WHO Expert Committee on Drug Dependence and Alcohol Problems and chair of the NICE Guideline Development Group on Management of Alcohol Dependence, all of which should make him sound more than qualified to give the talk today, which is on <laughs> alcohol treatment for the next frontier. So let's show him a warm welcome and you for coming back. Thanks very much, uh, no wonder I'm feeling exhausted actually, that sounds quite, <laughs> awesome. I wasn't doing all those things at the same time I have to say. Um, okay so, well thanks very much first of all for, for inviting me to, to come along and talk to you today. Um, uh, as was said, I, I'm a psychiatrist by background and uh, I trained as a doctor, then I trained in psychiatry and then I specialised in addiction so I've kind of come through that medical route into this field. But I think probably from what I'm going to be saying, you'll see that I'm not sort of entirely wedded to a medical approach to alcohol. There are other ways to approach alcohol. But um, one of the things I'm going to argue today is perhaps we've got a bit too far away from where we started in this field. That maybe we've got a bit too far away from the clinical issues and the clinical problems that alcohol presents. Okay. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to do three things. Uh, the first one is just to look backwards a little bit at how we sort of got to where we are today. And I'm going to review where we are at the moment and I'm going to give you a slightly cheeky kind of take on what I think is wrong with the treatment system that we have. And then I'm going to talk a bit about what we could be doing in the future uh, uh, for the better. So that's, that's my plan. So just starting with, uh, with where we've come from. and. <coughs> If you're, if you're thinking about uh, alcohol problems as a kind of general concept, they go back to the sort of beginnings of time, really, uh, pre-Bible, etc. cetera. Um, but in terms of medicalization of alcohol problems, um, this chap is probably the first person really to give a, a, a kind of clear description of uh, addiction as a disease and he was this guy he's a very interesting man he he's a physician to nelson's fleet and became eventually sort of chief physician in the, the fleet at the time of the trafalgar conflict and he subsequently when he left the navy he went off to edinburgh university to do his md his doctorate and he did it on alcohol because he'd seen a bit of alcohol this time working in the navy with all these <laughs> sailors and rum and all the rest of it But in his thesis, which is is part sort of polemic against the alcohol industry, and part sort of a clinical treatise on alcoholism as a condition, but he comes up with this really rather sophisticated idea that the habit of drunkenness is a disease of the mind. When you actually start to unpack what that means, that's quite a sophisticated idea for what is about 1796, before psychiatry had been invented. So he's basically equating uh, drunkenness, this condition that we all see out in the streets and in our patients, uh, as a disease concept, but quite a subtle disease concept, is a habit. Right? So it's a kind of psychological concept of addiction. Uh, now, <coughs> amongst a lot of other things, he, you know, and he, he, as I say, there were polemics against the alcohol industry who he saw as the kind of source of the problem, which to some extent some of us still do, But he also came up with this idea that maybe what these people needed wasn't incarceration or uh, punishment, but actually needed some help or treatment. And he has various suggestions in his his thesis about that. I have to say, it's a thesis, if we judge it by modern standards. It didn't have a lot of data in it. Uh, But it was very well written. Um, So so that was sort of 1790s. Then we come towards the end of the the 19th century and both in the US and in the UK we had this whole movement around medicalization of alcohol problems and the springing up of these inebriate asylums so essentially what it, what people viewed the problem as was uh, an addiction a disease which needed to be treated intensively away from the rest of the population in these purpose-built asylums where people could spend two, three years getting treated, uh, very often without their consent. So if they'd been arrested for some kind of uh, criminal activity associated with alcohol, they'd be sentenced to go here instead of prison. But there were some people that went in voluntarily as well. Um, and I guess it, it's a sort of forerunner of what we now have in the way of drug treatment and testing orders, or alcohol treatment requirements through our courts where there's an idea that okay you know somebody's committed an offence but perhaps there's an addiction problem underlying it that requires some kind of treatment to reduce the risk of uh, doing it again. Uh, There are also some very nasty things would go on in these asylums that probably that's a whole other talk but you know they were being given all sorts of experimental treatments like arsenic and gold injections and all sorts of things like that believed to be helpful in treating alcoholism and um, there is a paper I looked at recently about um, a, a single case study of this woman who'd been treated with strychnine as a treatment for alcoholism and the physician who wrote this treatise said that when she was allowed out in, out of the hospital to go down to the local town she never touched a drop of alcohol probably because she wasn't feeling very well you know <laughs> they were actually poisoning her but um So all these kind of ideas about you know this is a disease it needs a specific treatment rather like they were doing with lots of other medical conditions at the time that was very much around but then you get a sort of an interesting kind of crossover into what could be seen almost as the beginnings of a self-help AA type of movement and um, this is the Keeley League um, named after Dr. Keeley who was one of these chaps who he was a sort of cross between a physician and a snake oil salesman and um, he used to produce this bo- these bottles of Keeley's cure which you could purchase at great cost um, but were guaranteed to cure you of your alcoholism and uh, they were f- they were laced with sort of gold chloride i think it was which was pretty poisonous um, but also part of it you had to attend one of these sessions on a regular basis which is basically uh, a self-help group so it's a kind of temperance self-help group. And uh, you got also the Francis Willard's uh, uh, medal for abstinence, or you could sign the pledge. And although this kind of started in America, it very quickly moved to the UK and Ireland. And in fact, if you <coughs> go to Ireland now, there's still these kind of organizations very much in, in evidence still there. Um, One thing to say about Keeley was that although, although, you know, by modern standards, the guy was obviously a charlatan and he was in it for the money, you know, he actually commanded huge kind of public support for this, particularly amongst the people that were affected. (coughs) And he came across as a very caring doctor, you know, somebody who really wanted to help these people. But eventually, uh, sort of, as we move into the 20th century, uh, you have the development of Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1930s. very much like a mutual aid organization uh the connection with Keeley might be that they still see alcoholism as a disease uh, but in terms of how you deal with it it's very much about abstinence and it's about uh giving over your sort of control of alcohol to a higher power etc and alcoholics anonymous is a huge phenomenon today uh possibly bigger in america than it would be here but uh you know, a lot of Western countries uh, have a strong AA uh, um, movement. So, um, about the time I came into this field, um, this kind of concept of alcoholism as a disease was beginning to lose ground uh, all over the world, but particularly in this country and United States. Uh, partly because uh, of sociology, Uh, sociologists were beginning to do research, like large general population surveys about alcohol, and they were finding that this kind of idea of alcoholism as a disease, very severe, complex problems that people have with alcohol, that was only the tip of an iceberg of problems related to drinking in the general population. So there there was a much bigger group of people out there affected by use of alcohol You wouldn't necessarily fit your stereotype of somebody with you know a chronic disease of alcoholism and also there was perhaps a a, you know a more sophisticated understanding of the psychology of addiction was developing and the idea that um, you know maybe there were some of these new psychological treatments that were coming along like cognitive therapy and social skills training and so forth that could actually have a role uh, that you didn't necessarily have to Uh, completely abstain from alcohol maybe there's a way of moderating drinking so all this was coming along sort of around the time I came into this field and uh, I got my first consultant job in Springfield Hospital where Tom Burns over there and I worked for many years Um, and uh, so I just got a new consultant job to set up this alcohol service in southwest London for, you know, there'd never been an alcohol service, well there'd been sort of bits of alcohol services but not a comprehensive service. And I came along with great enthusiasm to set this up. And about the day I arrived, this thing was published called Effective Healthcare Bulletin on Brief Interventions in Alcohol Use. Uh, Which, this was in the very early days of systematic reviews so it probably wouldn't meet the kind of criteria that systematic review would nowadays And it was kind of selective in the way that it looked at the evidence to support a particular viewpoint, (laughs) shall we say. Uh, But one of the things it said was, evidence from clinical trials suggests that brief interventions are as effective as more expensive specialist treatments. Quite a bold statement. Um, Brief interventions being, you know, sort of GP giving five minutes of advice and a sort of leaflet and good luck sort of thing as opposed to admitting somebody to hospital and giving them lots of psychological intervention so (coughs) this came out and the local commissioner in Wandsworth phoned me up and said could I see you about this because you know this is a bit disturbing we've just given you a million pounds to set up this service and we're wondering now is this going to be good value for money not very helpful (laughs) at the time okay Um, but you know basically the recommendation from this was that you know people that are paying for health services and interventions for alcohol should be probably disinvesting in specialist care and giving it to GPs to do brief interventions. So I had to concoct a fairly hasty kind of story because we don't have a lot of evidence in those days to kind of one way or another say what was what was important Um, but (coughs) essentially uh, one of the things that they they did that was perhaps not very helpful was to look at studies that have been conducted with people that have fairly mild alcohol use disorders where they've had the GP giving some advice and they can show quite reasonable improvements in those people. But what they didn't look at was studies where they tried to do this with alcoholics where usually a brief intervention is a kind of control group you're comparing everything else with, okay. Um, so naturally they came to the you know, a conclusion that wasn't necessarily gonna work for the entire spectrum of the population so essentially where we are now is a bit conflicted we're not absolutely sure what we should be doing I think as a as a a profession as a you know society about alcohol so you got you know should we hand it over to dr. Finlay and his brief interventions Uh, should we keep these inebriate asylums open build more of them Uh, should we say well, it was actually nothing to do with the health service, it's all about self-help actually, you know, the state can just withdraw from this altogether and leave it to, to mutual aid. And uh, essentially, the, the patchwork of services we now have around the country, and if you, I'll show you in a minute, the sort of variance that goes on across the country. But basically, it's a patchwork of services. Some places do hardly any specialist treatment, you know, they rely a lot on AA, uh, some places have very well developed specialist services parts of south london for example have specialized care for alcohol problems um and you know some places they've done a lot of work to develop primary care to as an kind of alternative to specialist care but you know what you can't see is a clear sort of philosophy about you know, what what are we really trying to do here which group are we most concerned about and you know so you end up with this sort of um patchwork so uh, 2004 we were commissioned by Department of Health to do this project basically to look at what was available in the way of alcohol treatment and how far that met the needs that were out there in the general population across England and bizarrely this is the first time this had ever been done so you know when a minister asked the civil servants you know Uh, how many people have we got in alcohol treatment they couldn't tell them because there was no register there was no idea about just exactly what was available and uh, the sort of context is this is a new Labour government coming in at the time and they pledged to do something about alcohol apart from uh, sort of make it 24 hours availability and you know (laughs) etc etc they, they don't also pledge to do something about the treatment of people with alcohol problems. Um, so if you, this is sort of an extrapolation from what we, what we did, this is the epidemiology, so if you take a typical sort of English population, there isn't such a thing as a typical English population as you all know, but the average sort of population in England um, of a million people, there's about 130,000 people don't drink anything at all in a year. Uh, about half a million drink within the kind of government's sensible drinking levels to about half the whole population. About 23% drink in what describes a hazardous or harmful way so they're drinking above the government's sort of recommended safe limits but they're not yet experiencing serious problems with their drinking. 38,000 who would be like more harmful early dependent drinkers and about 10,000 who are fairly seriously alcohol dependent. Okay, so um, so that's the kind of spectrum that would be out there in a typical population. If you're in the south of England, uh, you know, this would be a lot smaller. If you're in the northeast of England, Newcastle, somewhere like that, this would be a much bigger, this would be almost half the size. <laughs> the so um, big variations in prevalence across the country. Uh, and and what we were interested in was to what extent does the provision of services in different parts of the country match the prevalence rate and this is what we found so for England as a whole uh, one out of 18 people who meet the criteria for alcohol dependence access treatment in a year Okay, (coughs) one in 18 of those people up at the 16 plus on the audit score. However, if you live in the northeast, you've got a sort of one in a hundred chance of accessing treatment in a year, compared to about one in 12 if you're in the northwest. Um, partly this is a kind of historical issue. So, in the northwest, for example, in London, have been places where there's been a lot of advocates of treatment. So, you know, there's been development of services uh, wi- against a background of relatively low prevalence compared to other places. Whereas in the northeast, there hasn't been that kind of drive to develop alcohol treatment. Plus, they've got a huge prevalence rates. So there's a great mismatch between prevalence and service provision. So anyway, we presented this to our funders, the Department of Health, and we spent months actually arguing with them about the definitions we were using and said how can we possibly present this to ministers this shows terrible disparities what are we going to do about that are you sure you've defined alcohol dependence narrowly enough because you know if you define it just a little bit more narrowly there'd be half the number of people to worry about etc so we had all these kind of debates with them which actually never got resolved uh, at all but they allowed us to publish it in the end. Uh, but <laughs> since then, they did precisely nothing to deal with the problem. Um, and instead, what they did was the the National Audit Office. A few years later, this is 2008 now. So that was 2004. we now in 2008. The National Audit Office came along and major in artwork as well as auditing, um, and they looked at uh, reducing alcohol harm, health services in England for alcohol misuse. And basically their mandate was exactly what we'd done four years earlier. Uh, But they're an official government sort of body. And we were academics, you know, so maybe with a vested interest, maybe they've got less of a vested interest. But actually they came to uh, pretty much the same conclusion as we did. Um, This is just one graphic from quite a big report, but, they looked at prevalence, this is prevalence going up this way, against expenditure in each PCT, primary care trust area across England, on alcohol services and you can see it's just a complete scatter, there's no relationship between amount spent and prevalence, rather the same as we had already shown four years earlier. Uh, so you'd have thought something might have happened then but actually nothing did and Funnily enough, last year the Department of Health put out another tender uh, for a piece of research to look at the gap between treatment and prevalence, uh, which we won the contract for because they'd obviously forgotten about our first piece of work. But (coughs) this time we have to, uh, we, we actually in a good way have to spend more time defining what we mean by need treatment and what is treatment and what is need. So we're just about to start that very soon. But I'm kind of not holding my breath here because this these sorts of studies throw up huge problems for governments about what do they do you know if, if these results are right, um, you know but there needs to be some pretty substantial investment going on to put it right. So anyway here we go. here's my little slightly jokey but serious caricature of the way <coughs> alcohol treatment looks and I'm thinking mainly about the UK, but actually this could apply to any. European country and possibly United States as well. Uh, we have very poor levels of identification of cases in primary care. So there's loads of people going to see their GP. They're depressed or they've got high blood pressure, and they're never asked about their drinking. So the, the drinking never gets kind of identified as an issue, so no interventions provided. And we did some research that showed. About 5% of people with alcohol dependence and about 1.6% of hazardous or harmful drinkers are identified by their GPs in a year based on a a case record study. So, if GPs aren't identifying people, they can hardly be signposted towards help. Uh, Secondly, um, because alcohol treatment has been sort of significantly underinvested in compared to drug misuse treatment uh, the, the disparate the difference in funding is that there's about 300 million goes into alcohol treatment per annum about 700 million goes into class a drug misuse treatment but the actual difference in prevalence is 10 to 1 so you get 10 times more, in, more people with alcohol dependence so it's kind of although it's often the same services that provide drug treatment and alcohol treatment they're heavily weighted towards the, al- uh, the drug provision rather than alcohol So with alcohol, the limited capacity of services requires very high turnover and very minimal contact. Uh, Usually treatment episodes are limited to less than three months, whereas drug misuse, you'd be very unhappy if somebody didn't stay for a whole year or maybe two years in methadone treatment. So treatment is delivered in sequential bursts. They get three months of treatment, they sort of wave goodbye as they go to good luck, as they go down the sort of hospital driveway, hope you don't have to come back. But in a year or two's time, that person's going to be relapsed back in treatment, getting another three-month burst and off they go again. For some people, that's absolutely fine. Three months is plenty. But for a lot of people, I'm going to argue in a minute, that probably isn't nearly enough. Uh, The next thing is it's provided by a multitude of inaccessible specialist services. And this is largely a function of the way these services are commissioned. Um, it used to be, you know, the, uh, health authorities would hand a certain amount of money to a mental health trust or a mental health hospital to provide alcohol treatment services and they wouldn't sort of ask very much about what they did with that as long as there was a reasonable kind of activity going on. Nowadays, it, you know, the money's kind of shrunk, relatively speaking, as the costs have gone up. and. The way that uh, commissioners have, have dealt with this problem, how do they get more for their money, is by putting it all out to tender every two years. <coughs> so they tend, this, you know, they, they tend it like a three, four million pound contract. They put an ad in the paper, they say any willing provider could be private hospital, could be a third sector, NHS, whatever. Uh, and usually the contract goes to the lowest bidder <laughs> who says that they can deliver the most number of interventions within the price offered. And that, you know, there's a good side to that. That means it's kind of containing the cost, but the risk is that it actually fragments the whole treatment system. You end up with contracts with like, I saw one in Wandsworth, where we used to work. It's all been re-tendered and now 34 providers in Wandsworth providing alcohol services. And if, if I was a patient, you know, somebody with an alcohol problem, I'm trying to navigate my way through 34 providers who all do different things, I really don't know, unless I was a very experienced person in treatment, Uh, I might have trouble kind of working out what I needed. Uh, Patients are largely responsible for their own kind of engagement and treatment so what tends to happen is you know the services are there they sort of say here we are we're open between these hours if you want help you can come along but if you imagine somebody with a really severe alcohol problem who's having trouble just getting out of bed you know uh, And who's been told I think you should go to this treatment service but you know if they don't turn up there's nobody gonna chase them then actually you know that you can see how that just doesn't work for some people Um, treatments not matched to individual needs everybody gets much the same so if I turn up with you know if I'm like a professional person who's got a bit of an alcohol problem and I want to come along and get some help I'll probably be offered much the same as somebody who's street homeless with a mental health problem you know with sort of multiple physical issues and etc. That's kind of a caricature but actually there's some truth in it that the services just do not have the capacity to deal with the really high-end complex people and in fact the system because of this kind of retendering business actually has a disincentive to work with those complex people because they're not going to get better quickly they're probably going to relapse and come back at some point so So you can see how the system's not really geared up for those complex people, and they can be very easily uh, overlooked. Uh, You might think this is a bit strange to say that the alcohol treatment's focused on alcohol. um, I think that is a serious problem, because most of the problems these people have are a consequence of their drinking, but they're actually also barriers to doing something about the drinking. So if you're living in a tent in Wandsworth Common, you know with a serious alcohol problem how are you going to engage with a, a day program or get a job or you know these sorts of things it's just not going to happen for you so you know we've been far too focused on sort of trying to help people to change their drinking without helping them to change their kind of the life that's supporting drinking and again you know there's not really an incentive to do that because th- these things are very entrenched very complex to help people with you can't just buy them a flat and you know a life etc stuff so, you know what I mean so uh, there's a high attrition rate I'll show you some slides in a minute on attrition during treatment so even getting into treatments hard once you get there the chances of falling out of treatment are quite high so high rates of relapse and re presentation and as we told the Department of Health there's a kind of postcode lottery around what you can get depending on where you are in the country um, so here's <coughs> Typical alcohol service, you know, this is a, from 100%, these are what people refer to the service. Just over 50% actually complete the assessment process. So they get to the appointment, complete the assessment, usually two appointments. Uh, you're down to nearly 25% actually then complete detox. So about half of those assess detox and then about half of them get into the aftercare program that. Nice would recommend to, to go on after the detox so you can see you started at 100% you're now down to sort of about 14% uh, attrition across probably the three months that we're talking about you know, going through treatment um, so it's always struck me you know actually if you could if you could reduce that attrition there'd be more people exposed to effective treatment uh, so how do you do that and that's going to be the focus of what I come on to later how do you keep people in treatment (coughs) what we do know is that these are the kind of factors that determine whether people fall out of treatment or whether they relapse (coughs) and whether they go on to have more problems these are kind of risk factors Uh, these are the top ones on the left these are slightly smaller on the right so social support things like being in a relationship uh you know having a job these sort of things social stability having a stable place to live employment education whether they're involved in criminality whether they have mental or physical problems uh, and whether they've had previous episodes of poor engagement but these ones on the left account for most of the variance in outcome from alcohol treatment but as you can see these are not alcohol specific issues. These are all the kind of general problems that people present with. Whereas the ones on the right, they, they do contribute to outcomes. So people that have got more severe alcohol problems tend to relapse more, etc. Um, you know, People that are, are less confident about improving their drinking and so forth. Um, these do account for a certain amount of variance, but a relatively small amount. So if the treatment is entirely focused on this side of the, the slide, you know, you're going to have a very minimal impact compared to if you start straying into the left hand side of the screen. So, what are the factors currently shaping treatment? Uh, I think what I, what I said in the first few minutes was about this confusion. What are we trying to do? Uh, I'm going to expand on that in a moment. There's this move from, from uh, sort of commissioning of services within healthcare to local authorities commissioning services which is very good for public health, I guess. You know, I'm thinking of the whole population rather than just a small group of people with really serious alcohol problems. But the risk of that is that you know that's all you're doing now is you're looking at public health and not the more severe end. The retendering hasn't helped. The multiple providers haven't helped. And payment by results, which is just beginning to come into the alcohol field. It's already there in criminal justice, I guess. You know more about this than I do. But, uh, Payment by results as it's currently conceived tends to be focused on the alcohol treatment outcome. Do people complete treatment? Do they stop drinking? Which you know, on the surface seems like a good outcome. Uh, but it also means that you've got an incentive to take people that probably don't need treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Whereas if the payment by results was based on do the people get a job in the end or do they stay out of hospital for liver disease? That, you know there would be a real incentive to take on the complex people where the risk of that happening is really high so anyway you end up with this thing that somebody in the literature is called burgerization of the field oh, buggerization burgerization it's a sort of big mac idea you know pile them high sell them cheap flip them through you know type of thing uh and sadly that that is very very true now uh, in lots of parts of the country which means there's also a kind of deprofessionalization. You know, anybody can do it. And in fact, if you can employ volunteer counselors to do this kind of treatment, it's a lot cheaper. Okay, so one usual paradigm shift. Needed, yes, but what? Um, So what I'm arguing for is uh, better targeting of treatment. I think the people with less severe problems probably need less intervention and the people with more severe problems probably need more intervention. So, we're actually now beginning to see instead of everybody getting the same thing, you're actually getting a better target. There should be a bigger focus on engagements. The people who have actually taken the trouble to come along to treatment, we should try and keep them there. And part of that is going to be some of the work we've done later on with Tom Burns and others. Uh, but also, part of it is sort of changing the emphasis on whose responsibility it is to engage with treatment. So if, it, if it's all the patient's responsibility you know you can walk away with your hands quite clean if somebody drops out of treatment feeling no responsibility whereas if actually the responsibility is on the care providers to keep people in treatment and try and help them over a longer period then actually you're really worried when somebody drops out of treatment and this would be i suppose the equivalent would be in the mental health field where you've got you know severe mental illness you know you really want to follow that person very closely over time to make sure they get the right treatment so they don't become more ill and you know cause more damage to themselves and others. Treatment should be more focused on reducing the barriers to recovery these things like homelessness and uh, mental health problems and so forth and what I'll talk about in the last few minutes is this idea of a more assertive case management which uh, we've done some work on So have, have you come across this idea of the prevention paradox, sort of familiar, anybody heard of that? No? no? Okay. Um, the prevention paradox It's a, it's a concept <coughs> that comes from epidemiology uh, where basically if you think of any disease, I think originally it came from the hypertension, high blood pressure world. That <coughs> Uh, and hypertension will look much like this. You've got a lot of people who are not hypertensive, some with slightly increased blood pressure, some people with kind of mega increased blood pressure. And of course, the higher the blood pressure is, the higher the risk of a stroke or a heart attack or whatever. But in fact, if you do the sums, you'd find out that doing interventions with this group is much more cost effective than trying to treat the really severe end because you're gonna prevent a lot of disease here by doing very minimal kind of interventions with a lot of people. So you're preventing it getting to the stage of being severe. And for each case, there's more room for improvement. And this has been applied to the alcohol field, and hence this idea about brief interventions being the answer, dealing with this, you know, 23% instead of this, 4%. However, this model of preventive paradox only really holds good if you've got a linear risk curve. So, uh, you know, if your alcohol consumption goes up by one unit, your risk goes up by one unit, two units, two units, et cetera. So you've got a linear risk. This model holds good. But if you've got a curvy linear risk curve, it doesn't hold good. So when you go to something like liver disease, this is the risk, grams of alcohol per day, against relative risk of developing uh, cirrhosis of the liver due to alcohol. And you can see we've got an exponential curve. This is quite an old slide, I'm afraid, but the, you know, wh- wherever people have done this, this is the kind of thick fig- uh, appearance of the gap. So really the difference would be if you reduced drinking by from sort of 160 to 120 units, okay, which is up at the very, very high end of the drinking scale, you can see how, You'd reduce your drinking. You reduce your risk massively. Whereas, if you're dealing with this end of the scale, you can see that your chance of reducing risk is quite small. Okay. So, although there's fewer people up here, they're actually extremely high risk. So these people are the ones who are going in and out of hospital with repeated admissions, you know, and eventually die prematurely from alcoholic liver disease in the process of going through all that you know they're clocking up huge costs to the health service um, whereas although these people aren't costing very much their actual risk of developing severe disease is very low okay so anyway that's the prevention paradox so the idea would be um, you know if you focus your energies on on this group you'd have to deal with a lot of them to make it sort of worth your while whereas if you if you looked at the the, the high end you'd, you'd probably have more bang for the buck as it uh, One of the ideas is about this minimum unit price of alcohol which uh, this is the this is modeling that work that's gone on at the University of Sheffield uh, for Department of Health there's been a few various models that they've published but essentially what they say is you know the more you raise the minimum price that alcohol can be sold at the the more it reduces consumption and harm and deaths and it's based it's not a straight line curve you can see it's sort of curvy linear and that's partly because uh, as you go up the price you're actually t- targeting the more severe cases so um so that's one way you could do this you, you wouldn't have to have any health services at all you just increase the price of alcohol and it could have an impact although it's a a regressive approach in the sense that it targets people who don't have very much money in the first place. Um, Another way is screening brief interventions in primary care. This is a trial we published in the BMJ uh, last year. Uh, There's actually two other trials about to be published, one in emergency departments, one in probation. And uh, essentially what we find was a fairly minimal intervention by a GP can actually reduce drinking significantly at one year follow-up, providing you're in the kind of hazardous, harmful end of the scale. But what we find is extremely difficult to implement. You know, uh, in a lot of cases, particularly in the emergency departments, we had to put our own team in to do this. You can't rely on the local staff to do it because, you know, although they think it's a good idea, uh, they just don't have the time, they don't have the energy to, to do it. So although it could be effective, it's actually very hard to implement outside of a well-resourced clinical trial. Uh, So it leads to this kind of idea that perhaps, you know, you need this, the pyramid of prevalence so these are the severe people up here and the less severe down there. Perhaps you need a sort of gradient of intensity of interventions across this this kind of spectrum. Down here, in the sort of hazardous harmful drinking these taxation measures are going to have quite big impact you know without you having to go out and train lots of gps and so forth you could probably tackle that group quite successfully with changes mm-hmm. in the price of alcohol whereas up here you're probably needing more intensive interventions so the last couple of minutes what i'll do is just talk about sort of treatment um, So uh, this is something Professor Burns has had a lot to do with over the years in the field of uh, severe mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar. Uh, Basically, sort of in a a nutshell, the idea is that you you have a worker that has usually a nurse with a very small caseload who spends a lot of individual time with people making sure they get to appointments, making sure that when they don't turn up for something, you don't leave it at that, go out to their house. Uh, You assertively engage them in treatment and uh, the contact in that case can be delivered over like a six-year period um, and flexible contact once or twice a week or more often if you need it so this is kind of rather different from normal care in schizophrenia and very very different from normal care in alcohol as I've said three months usually you know quite minimal contact so just skipping ahead as we're running a bit short of time I'll just show you trial that we have just finished so this is a pilot study has to be read as a pilot study not a definitive trial but we are now going on to the definitive trial (coughs) but essentially this is proof of concept could you do this in the alcohol field because you know initially we weren't very sure how the patients would take to this you know would they like to be assertively engaged or are they quite happy thank you very much Um, certainly some people with psychosis are not very happy to be assertively engaged at the beginning but maybe later on they don't mind Um, so part of this was adapting the model that's been used in psychosis for people with alcohol dependence we did a lot of service user consultation focus groups and so forth and quite contrary to our expectations every single one of them were saying absolutely this this is what we need if this had been offered earlier I'd have been quite happy with it and I probably wouldn't have taken so long to to deal with the alcohol problem so no problem there the, the problem we had was with the staff and the services who are not used to the idea of this assertive approach it'll create dependency it'll you know are you ever going to get rid of these patients once you've befriended them and oh my god you know uh, what about going into people's homes that's not something folk and alcohol services are used to doing they're used to people coming to them in an office so we In spite of that, I actually went ahead and trained up a number of people across three teams in South London, three alcohol services in the NHS, to deliver this work. And once they got into doing it, they absolutely saw the point of it and they could, you know, they engaged with it fantastically well, at least in two of the three services. So we did a trial of uh, uh, 90 odd patients half of them getting assertive community treatment half getting care as usual what I'll just quickly go through is the uh, differences in engagement and the differences in outcome and then I'll stop so uh, these are the characteristics of people sort of take my word for it these are very severely alcohol dependent people They're folk that haven't engaged very well with treatment Uh, SADQ of 32 is a very high dependent score a lot of them are not sure if they really want treatment they're still c- contemplating whether they, they're going to engage or not <coughs> um so in terms of contact with patients our target was to have a whole year of contact and in fact in the act we had 352 days contact on average with the patients so we engaged every single patient not quite for the 365 but very close to whereas care as usual the mean number of days in contact is 99 that's what ordinary treatment looks like in South London as of last year mean number of contacts 60 which is slightly more than the weekly contact we had specified so that's good seven so they're in 99 days but they only have seven contacts which is not really very intensive treatment in care as usual proportion of contacts actually in the addiction service 40% versus 94 so there's much more contact going on in the community in the ACT group so here's the drinking uh, baseline six months, 12 months four. you can see the red ones the um, sort of community treatment uh, it's not actually significantly different in terms of average number of drinks per day and I guess You probably wouldn't expect it to be in the sense that you know these people are so dependent when they do drink they tend to go quite full-on with it but there is a difference in the percent of days they are abstinent so if they don't drink at all you know uh, those are the days abstinent you can see it's getting up to sort of 80% at six months slight fall back there at 12 months And then in terms of service use, uh, these aren't significant but there there do seem to be fewer um, days in acute hospital care compared to the care as usual and more days in specialist care, so more day care there. So in other words they're engaging better with the services you want them to engage with and they're engaging less with emergency care effectively so um, just to sum up so I think the main things we need to do and this you know this is people like me you know providers of services as much as anybody else need to kind of rethink this I think we need to clarify the target population who it is we're wanting to treat and I think it's not a case of should we be doing the kind of low-end prevention paradox people or just the very severe end we should probably be doing both but they need different kinds of interventions so if we concentrated more on the public health type measures like price availability and so forth for the low-end people but we did a bit more intensive intervention with the high-end people we'd probably have a better impact overall and um, so there's a need for whole population measures you're probably aware last year uh, the coalition did a u-turn on minimum unit pricing having put it in their, you know, their pledge, in their manifesto, they would introduce um, a minimum unit pricing for alcohol uh, and they went through a consultation process and then abandoned it in July of last year, although they say it's not completely off the table. Uh, Scotland meanwhile, the Scottish nationalist government has gone ahead with it and it is now in legislation so they're going to introduce a minimum unit price in Scotland. But it's being challenged by the whiskey industry who Thomas Trotter if you remember in seventeen ninety was quite you know, worried about them and I think he was probably quite right to be worried about an industry that wants to stop public health measures coming in um, so we need to also take the interventions to the target population rather than sitting in an office waiting for them to come to us and that 's where aCT sort of community treatment has some potential but we really have a big job here with this commissioning how do we how do we change the incentives in commissioning uh, that commissioners put to services so that we don't have sort of McDonald's burgers you know (laughs) we have sort of fillet steaks (coughs) on the menu Um, and also the service is going to need to change because if if they're used to dealing with kind of less complex people they're really going to have to scale up to do work with the, the more difficult ones So light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> it's not it's not over yet but um, um these are all the people that have worked on this over the years including my good friend and colleague tom who i'm sure uh he's he's been a huge inspiration around this assertive community treatment and the, you know it's one of the good examples where there's been learning from one area of medicine to another that's been really positive so i think i'll stop at that point okay